helping to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Paul Engel. two main senses for the definition of the word institutionalized in this context. Establishing, established as a common and accepted part of a system or culture, and created and controlled by an established organization. Now, government institutions were created as a part of our culture to do the things we agreed were best done collectively. Now, these institutions that are supposed to serve us now try to control us. Take, for example, the federal courts. The Supreme Court term ends at the end of June, which is when the court usually releases its more controversial and important opinions. Notice I did not say rulings because, contrary to popular opinion, the Supreme Court does not rule. It opines. Yet today, many not only refer to these, option, these opinions as rulings, but attempt to enforce them as if they were. Now, over the next several days and weeks, I'll be looking at some of these edicts from on high to give you some perspective and hopefully some insight as well. We start today with one case about free speech and another about elections. Well, hello there, everyday Americans. Paul Engel here with the Constitution Study, where we read and study the Constitution. We teach the rising generation to be free, and I am glad you could join me today. You know, if there's one thing, you know, a pet peeve, a, a, a saying that that gets my spine to to, to, to clinch, it's when they refer to court rulings, especially the Supreme Court. It, 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 it's right up there with the American democracy. It makes me cringe because it shows such a lack of understanding, not just of the Constitution, but the laws and the actual structure of the United States that was given to us, well, now some uh, 230 years ago. So when, when I see an article that starts out, the Supreme Court ruled... I, I know it's going to be a difficult one. Not, not that the person is, is wrong about their conclusions, but it's this assumption, this, this cultural capture that acts as if, well, the courts are, are made of, the, of kings and queens that rule from on high, that, that everything they say is law, and it, it, it's just not true. It's part of what the Constitution studies here to do, is to educate us about these details that are so important. Now, the first case I want to look at today is Counterman versus Colorado. Now, reading from the opinion, uh, from 2014 to 2016, petitioner Billy Counterman sent hundreds of Facebook messages to C.W., a local singer and musician. The two had never met and C.W. did not respond. In fact, she tried repeatedly to block him, but each time Counterman created a new Facebook account and resumed contacting CW. Several of his messages envisaged violent harm befalling her. Counterman's message put, message put CW in fear and upended her daily existence. CW stopped walking alone, declined social engagements, and canceled some of her performances. CW eventually contacted the authorities. The state, the state charged Counterman under a Colorado statute making it unlawful to, quote, repeatedly make any form of communication with another person in a manner that would cause a reasonable person to suffer serious emotional distress and does cause that person to suffer serious emotional distress. 
counterman moved to dismiss the charge on First Amendment grounds, arguing that his messages were not true threats and therefore could not form the basis of a criminal prosecution. Following Colorado law, the trial judge rejected that argument under an objective standard, finding that a reasonable person would consider the messages threatening. Now, counterman appealed, arguing that the First Amendment required the state to show not only that his statements were objectively threatening, but also that he was aware of their threatening character. The Colorado Court of Appeals disagreed and affirmed his conviction. The Colorado Supreme Court denied review. So that's the basis. What you have is you have uh, somebody between a fan, and a, an over-exuberant fan, and a stalker. The, the fact that some of the messages caused uh, CW distress now maybe leans towards the stalker side. I haven't got into deep detail to see what the actual messages were. I don't even know if they're referred to in the case. But here's where I want to come up, because this is where um, I want to put some perspective on what's being said. Basically, the, the state of California says, listen, the you know, First Amendment doesn't protect uh, um, speech that threatens others. Or in this case, well, let me go on. According to the, the Supreme Court, they held, the state must prove in true threat cases that the defendant had some of a subjective understanding of his statement's threatening nature, but the First Amendment requires no more demanding a showing than recklessness. So basically what they're saying is, listen, um, you know, you do have to show that the person wasn't just communicating, they were communicating something that could be considered a threat, but that the First Amendment required no more demanding a showing than that the person was being reckless. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole opinion at this time, but I do want to read uh, just a little bit more. See, from the opinion, we read, The First Amendment permits restrictions upon the content of speech in a few limited areas. Among these historic and traditional categories of unprotected expression is true threats. Now, here's where I got to come in and I have to forget the legal mumbo jumbo. I have to go to the actual supreme law of the land and say, um, this whole case, well, it's a bit of a mess. So let's start. This is all based on a question about the First Amendment. The First Amendment reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievance. That's the entire First Amendment right there. So let's start with the first five words. Congress shall make no law. Congress didn't make a law. First of all, the law in question here is a Colorado law, not a not a law of con made by Congress. So the First Amendment automatically does not apply. Now the courts have said, well, you know, with the Fourteenth Amendment, the, the 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 states incorporated the First Amendment against the the states. And I'm like, sorry, the Fourteenth Amendment didn't change the language of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law. Still means Congress shall make no law. But that doesn't mean there aren't protections for the freedom of speech. In this case, it would come from the Colorado Constitution, specifically Article 2, Section 10, which reads, No law shall be passed impairing the freedom of speech. Every person shall be free to speak, write, or publish whatever he will on any subject, being responsible for all abuse of that liberty. And in all suits and prosecutions for libel, the truth thereof may be given in evidence, and the jury under the direction of the court shall determine the law and the effect. Or, I'm sorry, and the fact. So what we have here is actually a viol violation of the Colorado Constitution, 
possibly. But notice something here. First Amendment, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Colorado Constitution, no law shall be passed impairing the freedom of speech. This basically says there cannot be a law that impairs your freedom of speech, that prevents you from speaking. However, the way the Colorado Constitution puts it is very interesting because it says that um, the, the person being responsible for all abuse of that liberty. So what we really have here is we have a situation where a person um, was apparently using their feet, abusing their freedom of speech. How are they doing that? By repeated, unwanted, unwarranted contact with somebody who would ask them to stop, or I should say someone who had, had done all they could to avoid them, and um, they, they, they kept persisting. These were unwanted messages. This is, uh, uh, whether it's somebody knocking on your door, calling your phone, uh, this is persistent, unwanted contact, which is what the, the Colorado law was, was designed to punish, right? That, that under Colorado law, the, um, uh, the, the fact that this person was making, uh, um, was acting in a way that a reasonable person could expect to suffer emotional distress and that actually did come, uh, uh, cause emotional distress was sufficient to trigger the, the law. The question is, does that law abridge or limit a person's freedom of speech? No, it does not. No, it does not. It says these are dealing with the consequences of that speech. Now, to explain this, I'm going to go back to the canard that's often used. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater. The Supreme Court said that's a violation of the First Amendment, except it's not exactly what they said. See, the case in question is called Schneck versus United States. And it had to do with a person's uh, ability to um, attempt to persuade people to dodge the draft. You see, in that case, uh, I believe it was, I believe Holmes was the was the chief justice who wrote the opinion. I'm not sure about that. But he was talking about how, yes, you can speak freely, but there are, will be there you have to suffer the consequences of your speech. And he was made the, he used as an example. He said, "Listen, the First Amendment couldn't protect you from uh, the consequences of falsely crying fire in a crowded theater. In other words, you the First Amendment said you, you could not have a law that says, "You can't do this, but you certainly could have laws that punish." the false use of that, uh, the abuse of that, of that freedom. So again, I, I, I'm probably going to go through this case in a lot more detail over the coming, coming weeks, but I wanted to bring this to point because again, we're starting right off with a court. Well, that couldn't understand the basic reading of the first amendment. First, that Congress didn't write this law. And, and, and second, that it's not the first amendment. That's the issue. The question is be, because it doesn't provide a prior restraint. Let me back that up a second. Prior restraint's the idea of prohibiting speech before it is made. That's not what this law does. This law doesn't say you cannot speak. It says if your speech could reasonably cause uh, emotional distress to someone else, then you'll be held. Con you, you'll be held. Um, uh, you, you'll be held to account for the abuse of that freedom. 
Now, why do I spend so much time on this? Because freedom of speech, ladies and gentlemen, is under attack in this country. It's been under attack basically, well, probably for a lot longer, but it's been to the forefront of our knowledge for the last three years. And many people are saying, we have to censor, we have to abridge your freedom of speech because what you're saying is false, it's harmful, it's dangerous, therefore we can, we can prevent you from saying things rather than holding you to account for the abuse. It's a very important point. And, and it's something, again, I think in our, our institutionalized knowledge, we have lost these basic facts, the, the basic common sense reading of the supreme law of the land. And the reason that this opinion, not this law, not this ruling, this opinion is so dangerous is because it effectively puts government in charge of what can and cannot be said, not based on the perceived or actual harm to somebody, but an attempt to... They're saying the First Amendment allows for the infringement, the abridgment of the freedom of speech, which is something it specifically does not say. In fact, it says the exact opposite. And if we don't recognize that, as obviously the court doesn't recognize that, well... We're going to continue down this road of, of, of censorship. Now, there's another case, probably may not have heard of it. It may not have been a big deal, but there's actually something extremely important in it. The case is Moore versus Harper. Now, Moore's being sued or suing as an official capacity as Speaker of the House of uh, North Carolina House of Representatives. And the, the real the question has to do with um, gerrymandering and the uh, the laying out of congressional districts. Now, there's a lot in here. Again, it's going to take me a while to digest all this, but I want to go, let's start with the, the, the background, and that is the, the, the opinion opens with the elections clause of the federal constitution requires the legislature of each state to prescribe the rules governing federal elections. Right off the bat, there's a mistake. Why? Well, I guess it, it kind of comes to, what do you call a federal election? See, this is not a, what they're referring to is the, the congressional districts, except the congressional district, the, those elections, those are not federal elections. They're election to a federal office. Now, there's an office established by the Constitution of the United States, but those are not federal elections. And that's a very important point. Because as we get to the holding, they say, uh, they talk about the court having jurisdiction. They go through a whole bunch about the court's uh, jurisdiction, basically saying it's a controversy that comes under the Constitution of the United States. Therefore, federal courts have jurisdiction. But we get to the most important point. It says, the election clause does not vest exclusive and independent authority in state legislatures to set the rules regarding federal elections. Okay, that's true. But... We run quickly run into the the next problem. So again, reading from the from the holding, uh, Marbury versus Madison famously proclaimed this court's authority to invalidate laws that violate the federal constitution. That is false, ladies and gentlemen. I've read the Marbury versus Madison opinion. Nowhere in that opinion does the court say that it has the authority to invalidate laws. It says that when a law is, is contrary to the Constitution, it's void, and the court is bound to the Constitution. Meaning the court has to find, based in that case, about uh, the must place the Constitution above the law. 
Now, where this gets interesting is they go on to say the elections clause does not carve out an exception to that fundamental principle, the one that doesn't actually exist, but it says when state legislatures prescribe the rules concerning federal elections, they remain subject to the ordinary exercise of state judicial review. Uh, then, then the last piece I want to talk about today is, although the elections clause does not exempt state legislatures from the ordinary constraints imposed by state law, federal courts must not abandon their duty to exercise judicial review. There's the problem. You see, in order for it to be legitimately for federal judicial review, it must fall under the jurisdiction given to the federal courts in Article 3, meaning it must be a question of the um, uh, 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 brought up under the Constitution. The problem is, while the court is correct that the state legislature does not have, uh, how they put it, uh, does not vest exclusive and independent authority in state legislatures to set the rules, the exception to that is not the courts, it's the Congress. Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 reads, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. So the only entity other than um, than, than the state legislatures that can inter, can affect the time, place, or manner of holding elections for senators or representatives is Congress, not the Supreme Court. Now, I've run a little long, so I'm going to pick this up after the break. Before I go, though, you know, I don't know about you, but if you have a hard time sleeping, one of the products I use is REM Sleep by Healthy Cell. It's the only sleep supplement designed to support all four stages of sleep. I use it especially when I travel to help me fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, so what I can wake up refreshed and ready to go. Now, as an America Out Loud listener, you can get 25% off your first order of REM sleep or anything from Healthy Cell if you use the code out loud at checkout. So please go to healthycell.com, put your cart together, try REM sleep or any of their great products, but use that code out loud at checkout. It lets them know that you listen to America Out Loud, and as a thank you, well, you get 25% off your first order. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system 
that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code OUTLOUD and get 20% off. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. You've rejoined the Constitution Study. I apologize to rush out kind of quick. I got so involved with what I was talking, I started to lose track of time because I find this interesting. You know, you may say, Paul, that, that's just the subtle details, but it's those details that are important. In this case, uh, you know, Moore versus Harper, the, the court is basically saying, listen, the Constitution says we can get to determine how um the 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 states create their their congressional districts but the constitution says no such thing so the the well i'm not saying courts have no say the question is could a um could a case be brought to the federal courts because the the process violates some uh, part of the Constitution, like, uh, uh, you know, not allowing people to vote at the age of 18, not allowing women to vote, poll taxes, absolutely. But it's not the Article 1, Section 4 that is questioned. It's the other, it's the amendment to the Constitution that was would be violated, which is why I, I want to go back again and look at the details of this case. It, it's on my schedule because basically... What the court is saying, if I understand what I've read so far, it's the federal court's ability to decide whether or not the state court has any say uh, under the federal constitution in the uh, uh, creation of these districts. Let me back up and see if it makes a little sense. See, the, the North Carolina Supreme Court Throughout you know, every 10 years, we have a census, right? We enumerate the people that's used to apportion representatives uh, into Congress. Um, that generally leads to what's called a redistricting, where whether you gain or lose um, uh, representation, you have to redraw the maps. And of course, being politicians, they want to redraw the maps in the way most favorable to their political party. Uh, that's called gerrymandering. It's often pronounced gerrymandering, but I believe the proper preparation is gerrymandering, since the person attributed to his name was Gary. Um, the the point was the North Carolina Supreme Court threw out a congressional map because they said that um, it was uh, an egregiously and intentionally partisan gerrymander. Gerrymander, and that's what started. So the the uh, uh, North Carolina, I think was the, yeah, I'm, I'm losing track of all the cases. I apologize. But the, 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 the Speaker of the House, the, the House of North Carolina, asked 
the Supreme Court to take a look at this. Does the elections clause, which says the legislature decides, does that mean that the court has, the state court has a say in it? And basically the court said, yeah, it does have a say in it because it, it, it has to follow state law and state constitution. Now, this to me is another tangled mess, and it's it's one of those things that I I want to be careful about because you know bad facts make bad laws. But what I'm seeing here is uh, uh, again, people not reading the Constitution or reading into the Constitution what they've been told or what they want, and using that to get to the end that they want. Now, um, was that the, what happened with the North Carolina Supreme Court? Possibly, not sure. The court eventually changed its mind. It it reversed itself, which is why several members of the the U.S. Supreme Court said we should have just ignored this as moot because it's not a problem anymore. But of course, the court, the majority of the court, wanted their say in what's going on. It is a bit of a tangled mess. So um, this is something I think it's worth following up because we're, you're truly talking about your right under the Constitution, uh, to to have a say in federal legislation. It comes from the house, your representation in the House of Representatives, and who best decides how those districts, those congressional districts should be laid out. Is it the state legislature, as stated in the Constitution of the United States and the Elections Clause, with certain modifications allowed by, um, by Congress, as allowed by the Constitution of the United States, is it the um, this is it the courts of the state? Uh, do they have a say? It really, you have to, the only answer I could come up with is only if the legislature violated state law or state constitution. Which um, again, I, I'm not sure that there's any evidence that they did, because the the only part of the state opinion i found says well they it was it was racially gerrymandered so is that a violation of the constitution of the state of north carolina in other words does does the north carolina uh legislature have the legal authority to create the districts however they want that's the question that needs to be dealt with here my concern though is by the Supreme Court illegally meddling in something that really isn't its domain. The Constitution says the state legislature determines the, the, the time, place, and manner of electing representatives and senators. Period. Well, not period. It actually says Congress can make or change such rules uh, if done by law. It says nothing about the state legis- the, the state courts getting in there. And it says nothing about being a federal issue. And there's the problem. See, again, I, I haven't read through the whole thing. So consider this a preliminary uh, understanding. The problem I see is unless the Constitution of the state of North Carolina delegates to the, uh, to the state courts the ability to oversee how, um, how the legislature creates those districts, lays out that district map, well, then the courts had no say. But you have the Supreme Court saying, oh, yes, they do, because, well, courts get to review everything. 
Which gets me back to that institutionalized Americans thing. We have in many ways been institutionalized to believe that whatever the court says is true. Whatever the court says is law, and whatever the court says must be followed, no questions asked. But you see, that's not true. You see, the Supreme Court didn't make law. They offered their opinion. But we have this opinion because the, the, speak, the House of Representatives of North Carolina asked the court whether or not the Elections Clause of the U.S. Constitution allowed the, the Supreme Court of North Carolina to interfere in this process. That's what made it a federal issue. And the federal court uh, seems like they may have gotten it wrong. And again, I, get, I need to still dig in. Maybe there's a detail or two that I've missed. But you see, the, you see how, how the um, North Carolina couldn't deal with this themselves. They had to go and say, wait, we, we, need the, we need the federal, we need the Supreme Court to tell us. We need them to rule on this, to tell us what we can do and what we can't do. That's what I mean by institutionalized. They have been controlled by an established organization. In this case, the, court, the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, as I said, this is, well, this is the legal silly season. This is the time when the Supreme Court's putting out all sorts of opinions, and I got a lot to dig through. This will be one of them, so probably hear me talk more about this in, in upcoming episodes as I've had a chance to digest this and other cases even more. But I want to move on to another institution where we're creating institutionalized people, and that has to be the public school system. Based on my research, about 90% of all children in the U.S. attend a public, or more accurately, a government school. Now, I, I refer to these as truly captured institutions. Again, schools were created because we agreed that every child should have a basic education, reading, writing, basic math, and basic civics. That, of course, has been trashed into a, a, a captured system where it seems like they've been teaching everything but the basics. You have, I mean, what was the last time you watched a, a millennial uh, try to make change and just saw the blank look on their face when the computer couldn't give them the answer? Um, you know, we, we see this all the time, but things have been getting worse. Now, the recent, uh, was it a National Academic uh, Educational Progress Scores, the, the nation's scorecard, um, it's not looking good. We're seeing uh, lowest numbers in it ever recorded uh, for the bottom quartile of 13-year-olds as far as their, their reading. But what's interesting is the, the basic numbers, apparently, they're, they're, they're hideous. We've seen decades of progress in student performance completely wiped out. But now there are reports that it may be even worse. That, that after the, the, the scamdemic and the unnecessary lockdown of schools, the destruction of the, the basic education for our children, well, it, it, it's all but complete. Some people are claiming that hundreds of thousands or, of children um, simply dropped out of school. I don't mean they formally left school. They, they, just, they just aren't being part of the system. They're not getting any education at all. Now, schools have been bleeding students for, well, for years. 
But now with the with with the scandemic and the lockdown of the schools and the attempt to go to remote learning, we've not only seen that that students are not learning, that that young children were not developing the language skills, that that the the education markets are falling behind, but that many students find they can they can simply effectively opt out. They're there, but they're not really there. They're not learning. Now, of course, many schools, they're more worried about the fact that, well, if their, if their school attendance drops, they lose dollars. So they want kids to show up just so they can, can claim the dollars. But we're looking at the, the, the next generation. Will they be prepared to take on the mantle of citizen? To, to do business, to hold a job, to, to uh, be able to read the documents that are the foundation of this country. Will they have a basic understanding of civics or even the responsibility of having to get work done because that's how the society works? Is if, if people stop working, the whole thing falls apart. Think about that. Think of how much we depend on these government schools to educate the next generation. And, and, and we need and expect that, that next generation to, again, keep the economy going, uh, vote for people to represent us, to, to uh, uh, just keep society as a whole running. Hey, the way they say, be kind to your kids, they choose your nursing home. What happens when that basic education crumbles? Because as, as people, as individuals, we have institutionalized the education of our children to the point where we have little impact or even knowledge of what's being taught or not being taught. Um, have we institutionalized the idea that it's government responsibility to teach our children, that government gets to decide what to teach them, and government gets to decide if the teaching is effective, and, and we as parents have, have no say, have no, no input? Leave it to the professionals. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the professionals are failing. And if we don't, if, if we don't uh, figure this out, if we don't realize this and start to do something about that, we may lose an entire generation to an enfeebled education system that's designed not to create free citizens, but to create subjects of an ever-increasing government and an ever-bloated uh, a bureaucratic system. You see, when the the scandemic hit, and of course you had the the American Rescue Plan, the the fake attempt to just throw money at the problem, including I have no idea how many billions of dollars to schools. So we'll send money to schools. Except what we're finding out now, according to the Free Beacon, a large chunk of the money that went to those schools didn't go to students. It went to bonuses for teachers and administrators. And this is coming out because as we see the nation's report card showing a failure of our government education system, the response from uh, Miguel Cardona, the education secretary, is we just need to throw money at it. We've tried that. We got ripped off. See, the problem... I don't believe the problem's the money. I believe the problem's the institution. An institution that's become detached from the people who should be its customers, the, the, the parents and the students. 
But this institution that was created as part of our culture, because we we believe in the importance of having a basic education for all children, has now been taken over and is controlled by a professional elite that's more interested, apparently, in their paychecks than in the, the, the goal that they were created to fulfill. And as long as we are captured, as long as we are controlled by that institution, and as long as we allow the coming generations to be controlled by that institution, I believe we'll continue to see the decline in our educational standards, in, in our ability to read and write and comprehend, and most assuredly, in our civics knowledge, our ability to be free citizens of the United States. Now, I have to take another break. Before I do, listen, I've been shown around the pictures of the flag that was made for me by Wayne Fox at Fox's Fired Up Flags, and everybody thinks this is beautiful. It's gorgeous. You can find it. Um, uh, you'll see the pictures on the website, constitutionstudy.com. Uh, I've been working on, on getting a couple pictures up there. But it's truly beautiful. It's it's hand carved right here in the USA. It's a beautiful flag. It's it, it's three dimensional. It looks like it's blowing in the breeze, and it it's it's I love it. But you can get more. You know, Fox's fired up flags is more than just flags. It's flags and furniture. So if you're looking for a hand carved made in America uh, piece of furniture, piece of artwork, or or even a, a game table, well, check out. Foxes Fired Up Flags and Furniture. You can find them at facebook.com slash foxfiredupflags. Again, that's facebook.com slash foxfiredupflags. Look at some of their stuff. Talk to Wayne. Send him an email. Contact him. Whatever you need, if he can do it, I'm sure he will design it and it will be gorgeous. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, keep your face always toward the sunshine and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Falker with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Welcome back, everyday Americans, to rejoin the Constitution study. Today, we're talking about, well, an institutionalized America. We talked about the courts and how they've gone from deciders of controversy to rulers over many Americans because, well, they've been trained, they've been captured by the idea that federal courts rule. And when a Supreme Court rules, well, that's the law of the land. We talked about the schools and how government schools, what we used to call public schools, more accurately now government schools, how they've captured an entire generation, multiple generations, into this idea that we should let the professionals decide and 
while we watch the scandemic and the failures of the public school system and, and their policies now will infect generations to come because it was already a, a an education system mired in um, institutionalized knowledge and, and failing to teach the basics now seems mired even more. And all they can do is look for is money, 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 money. But again, school systems aren't the only places that are looking for money. You may want to take a look at your own, well, state house. See, shortly after I moved to Tennessee, uh, I had a meeting with my state rep and my state senator, and I asked them, I said, what are the, what are the big issues that, that you see right now in, in, in the legislature? What are you working on? And their big concern was money. Specifically, it was gas tax money. See, the concern they had was, well, as cars get more and more fuel efficient, they burn less gasoline. As we push towards electric vehicles and, and, and other forms of transportation, well, there are going to be less people buying gasoline. And of course, they got dependent on the gasoline taxes. Why? Well, for more than a century, gas taxes have been a major source of revenue, not just for Tennessee, but for many states for their transportation funding, how they, they repair the roads and the bridges and, and all the things that are involved with, uh, well, keeping the transportation system up and running. And the funny thing is, is as they have worked to say, we need we need more fuel-efficient cars. We need more electric cars. We need to disincentivize people from buying gasoline effectively. Well, that means their gasoline tax revenues have gone down, and now they've got to figure out where to get the money. So what do we do? Well, a lot of states, they're trying to find an, an alternative source of revenue. It's a nice way of saying they're looking to reach their hands into your pocket. See, one of the things they want to do is they want to to charge uh, vehicle owners by the, by the miles they drive rather than the gasoline they purchase. Now, this has a couple of, of interesting twists. See, the one thing about gasoline tax is it's paid by whoever purchases gas in the state. For example, just this past week, I was in Florida. I was taking care of some family business, and I drove to Florida. And I bought gasoline in Tennessee, I bought gasoline in Georgia, and I bought gasoline in Florida. Which means I paid gas taxes in three states, two of which I was not a resident of. Now, if, say, uh, Florida and, and Georgia were to go to a mileage-based tax system, well, they wouldn't have gotten my tax dollars. Well, that's assuming they actually got rid of the gas tax, which you know they're not going to do. But that's hang on to, to that thought for a second. So the thing about a mileage tax is it doesn't collect taxes from out-of-staters. It only collects taxes from in-staters. And they, well, they may be giving up on that revenue. Of course, the other thing to cons consider is um, as a consumer of gasoline, uh, I wouldn't be paying taxes in those other states for the mileage tax. So it it kind of re-swizzles the um, the numbers. Now, in some ways, you're saying, well, we're going to put the burden uh, for maintaining our roads more on the taxpayers or the car owned the vehicle owners within our state and kind of, well, minimize the amount of tax collected from out of staters, from tourists. But there's something much more fundamental that we have to consider here. 
how's the state going to know how many miles you drive? And how is the state going to know how many miles you drive within that state? Interesting question. See, if all the state does is look at my odometer every year to say, see how many miles I've driven, they have no idea where those miles were driven. Some of them were driven in, in Georgia. Some of them were, dri were driven in Florida. I travel a lot and I tend to drive. So that would, they would be collecting taxes for Tennessee from miles that I drove in other states. That doesn't seem fair either. So the only way for them to do this is for them to have some sort of, oh, tracking system built into the car. So the state, uh, the state could actually track not just how many miles you drive, but where you're driving them. So they would know how many of those miles are actually driven within your state and therefore subject to state mileage tax. Are you really ready? For, are you really prepared for your state to track you wherever you go? But granted, if you have a smartphone, Apple and Google are probably tracking you already. Are you ready for the state to track every mile you drive? in order to collect taxes from you. Now, what I find interesting is they're trying to replace a gasoline tax with a mileage tax because more people are going to electric vehicles. Why not just put a, an electric surcharge for car char you know, uh, electricity used through car charging stations? You know, look where they got surcharges for, for everything else. We've been captured by this idea that government needs a certain amount of money not because they're doing what we, we've authorized them to do, but because they just need money to do all sorts of stuff. And I don't think we take the time to consider the consequences of those decisions. But it should also show that, well, just like everybody else, politicians are captured by money. And when they see money, the, the decrease in the income, see where most of us might try to find another job or 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 cut our expenses. No, government says we just need to rake in more money. We need to find a way to reach into your pocket and grab some more stuff. Now, I've got another story, one more story for today. And, well, it kind of hit close to home. Those of you who've listened to the Constitution Study for a while know I was born in New York City. I lived there to the age of 11, visited there regularly uh, until we moved out of the state, uh, what, eight years ago now? Wow, almost eight years. And um, I saw this, you know, the New York City, we left New York, New York State because New York State got stupid. My family left New York City because New York City got stupid. And in the latest example of stupid, apparently there's a bunch of city officials that vowed a crackdown on wood-burning ovens. Now, again, New York City is known for several things. One of them is pizza. And some of the best pizza is made in a wood-burning oven. So apparently there's a man, um, I'm not sure this person's name, but he's had enough and he decided to walk down to City Hall in New York City and, uh, well, give him a piece of his mind. The woke-ass idiots who run this city are doing everything in their power to destroy it. We have naked men with their titties bouncing around all over the city yesterday in public in front of children. We have the most violent, raging crime rate ever. We are being invaded by illegal immigrants who are being treated way better than our homeless veterans, our teachers, and first responder heroes who were fired, still not compensated, 
because they didn't take the Fauci injection. Our city schools produce the dumbest kids, and the woke-ass punks who run New York City are afraid of pizza? The world used to respect New Yorkers as tough, thick-skinned, and gritty. Now we have become pussified. It's a damn shame. You heard of the Boston Tea Party? Well, this is the Boston, New York, this is the New York Pizza Party. Give us pizza or give us death. And the man then took out several pizzas. He started hurling them over the fence into the, the I guess it's, I don't know, City Hall, um, shouting, give us pizza or give us death. Yes, eventually police showed up to stop him, but you know, there's. I, I think there's something poetic. Maybe it's the New Yorker in me. There, there is nothing like New York City pizza. I, I've, I've had pizza around the country. I haven't tried it around the world, but I've tried it around the country, and it's rare to find something quite like New York City pizza. We're known for it. In fact, I remember when I was working in corporate America, there was a group of us that had gone to New York City for a, a task, a job we were working on. And I was the only one that was local. I was the only one anywhere near the area. So one day we decided, you know, it's lunchtime. What do you want to go for lunch? I said, I'll take it to the, the quintessential New York City uh, pizza shop, the corner pizza shop. Got it, went in, ordered a slice and a soda. And uh, the guy, they liked it. In fact, the next day I said, where do you guys want to go for dinner or for lunch? They said, we want more pizza, please. There's something about it. So Boston had their tea party. This man wants the pizza party because they want to crack down on, again, wood-burning stoves. I think part of it is, again, been captured by an institution. This institution, he refers to it as wokeism, which is really kind of hard to, to find a common definition of. But I believe it's a part of a, a institution for climate change. The belief that a, a sovereign elite know better than everybody else what's going to happen, even though they've been proven wrong time and time and time again. We have to do what they say, because if we don't, we're all dead. They've been wrong, but they want to do it. And this is one man's demonstration. Now, what would be interesting is, if this starts happening over and over again, if more and more people start showing up and well, throwing their pizza overboard onto City Hall, maybe. Maybe they'd get more attention. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't seen a lot of news about this. It's why I caught this caught my attention, and I thought it was worth it was worth looking at. There's one man standing against the machine. And really, is that such a bad place to be? He points out that New York City people are known for their grit and their determination. Maybe it's about time more of us got some some grit and determination, and we're willing to stand against the institutionalization of the American people. The, the creation of, of entities and organizations that are established to control us rather than serve us. See, the thing about being institutionalized is the easiest way to get along is just well, go along and get along. Take whatever ever drugs and injections they offer you. Don't push it. Don't stand out. Don't, you know, what, what is it? it it's the, the nail that sticks up is the one get, that gets hammered. Don't do that. Go along, get along. And I saw an awful lot of that over the last three years, especially in 2020 and 2021. I saw a lot of people that just said, we'll just go along to get along. Maybe not in that many words, but that's what they did. 
The question is, see, I don't think Americans were institutionalized in 2020. I don't even think they were institutionalized in 2016. I believe that this institutionalization of the American psyche has been going on for decades. But like so many things in this world, it's based on a lie. It's based on the lie that uh, we have a ruling class of judges, that, that we have an elite, that only the, the professional elite can tell us how to teach our children or, or what injections we must take and, and what we're allowed to do medically. That is, that, that, that's all a lie. It's the emperor who has no clothes. And as long as everybody just goes along to get along, well, everybody's kind of hoodwinked by this institutionalized nonsense. Now, it takes more than one person. In the, in the Hans Christian Andersen story, one boy pointed out the emperor was naked, and that broke the spell. Usually, it's not the first person that stands up and points out that they're naked that breaks the spell. Usually, it's the second, usually the third that breaks the spell. So here I am. I'm pointing out the nakedness of the Supreme Court. They do not rule. They offer opinions, and many of them are horrible. They're not based in the law. They're not based in the Constitution. They're based in politics. I'm calling out the nakedness of their institution. I'm calling out the nakedness of the failures of our education system. The question is, will I be calling out alone? Will I be like that man in New York City throwing pizzas over the wall? Will I be alone? and a target for everyone else? Or are there others that will join me, that will, will find out what areas they can't put up with more and, and, and stand up and say, no, that is wrong. That is a lie. That emperor is naked. That law is void. That opinion makes no sense. We won't comply. See, that's the American spirit. Those who are willing to stand up and do what is right, even when it's not easy and when it's not convenient. It would have been a lot easier for us to just roll over and comply with the, with the orders of the king. It would have been easier to comply with the British when they came back in 1812. It would have been easier to not get involved in Europe in, in 1917 and 1941. It would have been easier, but it wouldn't have been the right thing. I think it's about time... Americans broke out of their institutionalized stupor and once again became the land of the free because we are the home of the brave. Now, I hope you'll consider joining me in standing up and pointing out the malfeasance, the lies. Head over to constitutionstudy.com slash patriots to see how you can join me and be one of the few, the proud, the patriot that points out the failures. Not because it's easy, but because it's the right thing to do. Now, I also hope you'll join me right here for the Constitution Study on America Out Loud Talk Radio every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. We're heard right here on the iHeartRadio Network. And if you can't make it then, well, by all means, join the podcast. The, the episodes typically go to broadcast the podcast a day or two after they're heard on the broadcast. You can listen in your favorite podcast app, but I really wish you would su subscribe. Leave me a rating or a review. We want to get those numbers up. We want more people to hear about the emperor's failure to wear clothes, about the, the, the false institutions and the fake gods they want us to, to worship at.
The only way I can do that is for you to help me spread the word. So subscribe to the show, to the podcast. Leave me a rating and review so other people will check us out. But you can find all the links you need at the homepage at americaoutloud.com, but share those as well. So you, then you're sharing not just one voice standing in the wilderness, not one guy throwing pizza, but you're helping to share our most important gift, the blessings of liberty to everyone in this great nation.